Looking for something to lift your spirits and motivate you to be your best self? Look no further. Tune in to Motivational Moment with Stuart McLean every Wednesday for a dose of positivity and practical advice that will help you make a positive impact. With his energetic style and uplifting content, Stuart will help you shift your life perspective, raise your vibrations, and build a positive mindset. Whether it's learning how to be more effective, building confidence, raising your standards, or pushing through brain fog, Stuart's great personality and easy-to-listen-to advice make this podcast a must-listen for everyone. Because motivation isn't just for athletes. We all have the ability to learn, grow, and improve in our lives. So, what are you waiting for? Check out Motivational Moment with Stuart McLean. I will be providing a link in this episode's description, so give him a listen. your host Billy Dean Shoemate the third here and welcome back to another episode of strange places this podcast is brought to you by asylum 817 productions Spotify and DistroKid. and boy do I have a doozy for you this one is a doozy to say the least based on the title you're probably feeling multiple things as I probably would too if I saw a podcast episode about this particular case everybody's done it everybody every youtuber so many articles online, everything from BuzzFeed to CNN, from <laughs> the bottom of the barrel to the top of the mountain. Everybody has tackled this case. And I, you know, I got to be completely honest, I avoided it for quite some time because this is one that's fascinated me. And it, it's kind of a catch 22 because if you make an episode about Betty and Barney Hill, the really the first case of supposed alien abduction and arguably the most famous there's it, it, it like i said it's a catch-22 because you're <laughs> you're almost guaranteed listens at that point but what are you doing that's different is there another spin you could possibly put on this isn't even about putting a different spin on it is that even necessary and then I got to thinking, it's like, you know what, this has been investigated by everybody, but it's never been investigated by me. And I think that the way that we do things, the way that we investigate things, the way that we put our own common sense into it, I'm thinking maybe, just maybe, it's fallen victim to what we say on this podcast a lot. People want so much for the thing to be the thing. They want so much for that thing to be real that they often overlook what's staring them right in the face. Common sense goes a long way, and common sense is not used in the field of paranormal study anymore. It's just not. It's all about views. It's all about clicks. It's all about sensation. Either that or regurgitating what everybody else already knows. So I want to see if we can, if we can, this is my approach, see if we can examine this case and do what we do and see if there's any other angles we can see this. I'm not guaranteeing there might be, but we're going to try. For those of you who don't know this story, 
because this podcast is listened to all over the world. There may be, you know, quite a bit of you that don't know this story. If I got one for you, there's a belated honeymoon, spontaneous road trip to Montreal and Niagara Falls. I think it was a well-earned break from busy lives. Barney Hill, he worked a grueling night shift at the post office distribution center in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. His wife, Betty, was a social worker specializing in child welfare cases. The job took a heavy emotional toll, I mean, for both of them. They were active in their church. They were involved in the civil rights movement. It left them with very little time to themselves. So when a gap opened up in their schedule, an opportunity to get away for a few days, they grabbed it with both hands. The decision to make the trip was taken on the spur of the moment. The Hills drove away from their New Hampshire home at noon on Saturday, September 16th, 1961. They only had 70 bucks with them. Now, $70 in 1961, <laughs> that was a pretty good chunk of change, I suppose. But I wanted to mention that. They were in a rush to pack their luggage and fuel up the car. They missed closing time at the bank, which was unusual for them. Accompanying them on the trip would be Delcy, their pet dog, the getaway, the getaway was enjoyable, relaxing. I mean, it's just what they needed to recharge their batteries. It passed way too fast. On Tuesday, September 19th, they were on their way back to Portsmouth, driving by night. At about 10 o'clock p.m., they were in Lancaster, New Hampshire, stopping off for a cup of coffee before taking on the final stretch home. A storm followed them south. Betty reckoned they could beat it if they hustled. Barney, he figured they'd be home by 2 a.m. at the latest. It was just out of Lancaster that the Hills road trip took a turn for the surreal. At about 10.30 p.m. driving U.S. Route 3, Betty looked up at the sky and spotted a bright point of light. She initially said she thought it was a falling star. Barney countered that it was more likely a satellite. Then the lights started making erratic movements that negated both of these possibilities. It grew bigger. It grew brighter. It seemed to be descending. Fascinated, Betty asked her husband to pull over. She wanted a better look. Barney shrugged and angled the car towards the shoulder. The dog needed a bathroom break anyway. Barney brought his binoculars on the trip. Betty focused these on the light and was astonished by what she saw. It was some kind of craft with multiple colored lights flashing along its side. Years later, or years earlier rather, Betty's sister had told her that she'd seen a flying saucer. Betty said she laughed and said she just had an overactive imagination. Now she was sure that the object before her was exactly that, an alien craft. She passed the glasses to Barney. He later described the object as a plane, but not a plane. The object was no threat to them, he said. Fascinated though they were, they had to get moving. They set off again, driving an isolated stretch of road through uh, Frans uh, Fransonia Notch, that area, Indian Head kind of area. Betty was still watching the sky and could see the object. She'd later say it was 40 feet long and seemed to be rotating. Also, troublingly, it appeared to be following them. 
About one mile south of Indian Head, it descended rapidly and hovered over the road, forcing Barney to stand on the brakes of the Chevy Bel Air. The craft was just a hundred feet away, hovering completely silent. It was a flat disc, Barney said under hypnosis like a pancake, large enough to fill the entire field of view of the Bel Air's windshield. Wait here, Barney told his wife as he stepped out onto the tarmac. His binoculars were in his hand. A pistol was in his pocket. Lifting the glasses to his eyes, I want to explain this too. I mean, this is, this throws some people off. The pistol, you got to remember, this is the early 60s. They were an interracial couple. Betty was white, Barney was a black man. And they'd had their share. They, you know, they were both active in the civil rights movement, right? You know, they both had their share of what interracial couples went through back then. And on top of that, Barney said later that he felt an insatiable need to bring his pistol. He just had the weirdest feeling that he should bring it. And it was not entirely uncommon, you know, for him to do so. They'd both had their share of threats. Now, he said he lifted the binoculars to his eyes. Barney scanned the craft and saw humanoid figures peering out from its windows watching him. One of the creatures gave him a hand signal, seeming to indicate that he should stay where he was. Then the craft drifted closer. Now it was just 50 feet away. Barney could make out figures inside humanoid forms wearing glossy black uniforms. A long structure started descending from the bottom of the craft. The next thing Barney knew, it was dawn, and he was standing on the front lawn of his house. Neither Barney nor Betty Hill could recall how they got there. How they... How had they somehow driven 150 miles without remembering a thing about it? What they did know was that they felt defiled. Betty's dress had a rip in it. Barney's shoes were badly scuffed. The strap of his binoculars was broken. Both of their watches had stopped, and despite trying to repair them, never worked again. Barney started carrying their luggage into the house, but Betty wouldn't let him bring the cases inside. She insisted that they be placed outside the back door. She couldn't explain why. Both of them took a long shower, scrubbing themselves raw. They needed to wash away. They just had this weird feeling that they needed to wash away any contamination. That feeling was overwhelming. The Hills would spend a long time talking through what happened to them. They even drew pictures of the craft and the figures that they'd seen. However, the memories were hazy, incomplete kind of fragmented. Had they somehow imagined the whole thing? No, there were typical manifestations of their encounter. That's what bugged them the most. On the hood of their car was, there were these concentric circles that had not been there before. Almost looked like sun damage. These appeared to be magnetic. And I don't know how Barney knew this, but he would place magnets near these spots. He put a compass near the spots, and it, it would do you know just bizarre things. It was it had a little bit of a magnetic feel to it. This is what convinced them to talk to somebody. Now, you know, during the 1950s, 1960s, it goes without saying that the U.S. security services were far more open, at least to the public. <laughs> uh, you know, at least on paper, right? to the possibility of extraterrestrial visitors. 
Project Blue Book, a U.S. Air Force smokescreen <clears throat> initiative, ran for nigh on two decades, investigating incidents just like the one Betty and Barney Hill had experienced. We know a lot about Project Blue Book now and the purpose behind that. But what people knew back then is that this was a legitimate study trying to you know, find out what was going on behind these massive upticks in UFO sightings since the late 40s. The Hills met with Walter N. Webb, a Boston astronomer and NICAP member. NICAP is a National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. Webb listened earnestly to their story, and he did. He submitted a report stating that he, in fact, believed them, a rarity for anybody having to do with anything Project Blue Book. The incident had likely happened exactly as they described it. That's a quote from him. The problem was that there was a missing chunk of time. The crucial few hours that Betty and Barney had spent aboard the ship were missing, seemingly erased from their memories. Try as they might, they could not recover those lost hours. Barney suggested that their brains were likely suppressing the memories because they were too terrifying to recall. Over the course of several more interviews, they tried and failed to remember, and then someone suggested hypnosis. The psychiatrist, the guy contracted to work with the Hills, his name was Dr. Benjamin Simon. He would spend many hours with the couple using hypnotism to help them remember what emerged was straight out of a sci-fi movie. During his first session, Barney described standing on the road surface observing the alien craft. He panicked and ran back into the car, slid behind the wheel, turned the key. He threw the Chevy into reverse and made a turn in the road. Moments later, he and Betty were racing away from the thing. But then, Barney felt a strange compulsion, something he was powerless to resist. It was telling him to pull off the road and follow a dirt track into the woods. Then it told him to stop. Barney sighted six figures standing on the dirt road. Three of them approached the car. The leader of these entities told Barney not to fear them, but he remained anxious. The leader then told Barney to close his eyes. I felt like its eyes had pushed into my eyes, Barney said, under hypnosis. Betty's recollection was similar. I was told to close my eyes. I saw two eyes coming close to mine, and it felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. She said the same phrase. And this was done, these were during the separate sessions. Bizarre. The difference between the two accounts had to do with how communicative the aliens were. Betty said that the leader spoke to her in English. Barney said that they did not address him at all and spoke to each other in kind of a mumbling language that he did not understand. Through weeks and months of sessions, they did a lot. Further details emerged. The couple had been brought aboard the craft by gray-skinned creatures with large black almond-shaped eyes. Once on board, they were separated, each brought into an examination room in turn. Their clothing was removed, and they were made to lie down on a metal table. Samples of hair, nail clippings, skin were taken and placed on a clear material that looked like a glass slide. Sensors connected to wires probed their heads, appendages, spines. A needle four inches long was inserted into Betty's belly. She believed it was a pregnancy test. It left her squirming in pain, no anesthetic. In the midst of this, there was also a moment of, I would say, levity. 
While examining Barney, one of the creatures came scuttling from the examination room holding something in its hand. It was talking excitedly to another one. Betty realized that it was holding her husband's dentures. The creatures did not seem to understand what this medical device was. Now, according to Barney, he conversed very little with the creatures, if at all. Betty, though, seems to have had a lengthy conversation. She was shown their position on a star map, which she later drew a picture of it. Well, we'll get into that, trust me. She also claims that one of the creatures wanted to give her a book, but was prevented by doing so by their leader. And what did Dr. Simon make of all this? He later stated that he did not believe the couple was abducted by aliens, rather that they had suffered some kind of mutual psychotic breakdown. He did not think they were being deceptive, though. That's important. He believed that they seemed genuinely convinced that they'd been taken aboard an alien craft. To them, their encounter was real. Kind of like the polygraph test. I was talking with a friend last night about polygraph tests. And polygraph tests often get kind of a, (laughs) they get a confused rap big time. Polygraph tests, they don't, say they don't tell the actual truth they don't prove that this happened or this happened all a polygraph test does is tell you if that person believes this happened it just points out deception like the travis walton case you have a bunch of guys that said that they saw this and this is what happened they all pass a polygraph with flying colors that doesn't mean it actually happened but that does mean that these people, these men, believed that it had happened. To them, they were, they were telling the truth. They believed that this occurred. And we'll do that one eventually. <laughs> yeah, I can't stay away from the Travis Walden case. As much research as this one took, I've been researching Betty and Barney Hill. Oh my God, watching documentaries, watching movies, <laughs> reading case reports, trying to find things that uh, one thing in particular that I don't think anybody's laid eyes on for years, looking at every, I, I, I do my research and uh, when I'm at the point where I feel like my eyes are about to jettison out of my skull, it's about time to record the episode. So uh, Travis Walton's going to be a doozy. But as this one was, this so much research for this one, it was nuts. But I wanted to pretend like I'd never, I'd never heard this story before. I know it sounds silly and maybe a little bit childish, but sometimes when I tackle stuff like this, I pretend that I'm, you know, some kind of paranormal detective, right? Someone walked into my office like some film noir movie, The Lady in the Red Dress, you know, and (laughs) I hear the music swell and the dust motes are flying in the air. I take my whiskey out and I take the case. It's fun. It's, It's just a little, you know, kind of thought experiment I do, but I do it for a reason. And it helps because I want to treat these cases as if I have never heard of them before. They're just coming across my desk today. So Dr. Simon, he concurred that what they, they wholeheartedly believed that this event occurred. Barney and Betty Hill were not the first to report seeing a UFO, not even the first to claim that they'd been abducted. This was the first famous case of UFO, of alien abduction. Some people say Betty and Barney Hill was the first. No, I Believe me, it's not. But theirs was the first story to capture the nation's imagination, the first to be widely publicized. They were also the first to mention certain details, details that would become familiar tropes in the years that followed. 
Henceforth, just about every abductee would describe creatures with gray skin and large eyes, saucer-shaped craft, medical examinations, probes, mind control. Lost time became a feature of these reports as well. So how much credence can we place on the testimony of Betty and Barney Hill, right? Dr. Benjamin Simon, the person who worked most closely with the couple, believed that they experienced some kind of breakdown and dreamed up the whole thing. Other mental health professionals agree. The whole thing was an elaborate hallucination, they say, brought about by stress. They point out that the Hills had both demanding jobs and were very involved in outside activities. They had not even had time for a honeymoon. And even when they went on their honeymoon, they were gone for, what, three to four days? And there's another fact to consider. Barney and Betty Hill were an interracial couple in an era when this was uncommon in America. In fact, downright dangerous. Barney was black. Betty was white. Wow. They likely had suffered discrimination and exclusion, guaranteed. They were involved in the civil rights movement. At a particularly turbulent time for race relations in the country, Barney sat on the board of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Heavyweight. That would have added an extra layer on top of all that. The human brain can be unpredictable under such conditions. It might even conjure up an alien abduction scenario that didn't even happen. Could it? That's what, this, is what, this is what the doctors are saying. But perhaps these mental health professionals are allowing their personal biases to get in the way of the simplest explanation of all. Their default is to look for rational outcomes and UFOs are not that. Perhaps Benny and Barney Hill really did encounter an alien craft on the road between Lancaster and Portsmouth. Perhaps the abduction happened exactly as they said. Whatever the case, the Hills stuck steadfastly to their story over the years that followed. They never sought to profit from their experience despite numerous books, movies, documentaries. Barney died, sadly, in February of 1969 of a cerebral hemorrhage. He was just 46. Betty lived well into her 80s and passed in 2004. To her dying day, she insisted that their story was true, that aliens existed and have visited our planet. Now, as you can imagine, we're probably going to go over <laughs> on our time slot a little bit on this one. There is a lot to unpack here. And I know that the quote-unquote story section, you know, of the episode. <laughs> it was quite a bit longer than normal. But I really wanted to sink this one in. And there are some details there that you don't even, you, you really don't see in the movies and the documentaries and what have you. You, you just, you don't see it. A lot of stuff is left out. I wanted to get as detailed with that story as possible. It's not going to be a major thing here in just a minute, but nobody mentions the dog. Very few people mention the pistol. It's like, if you're going to tell the story, tell it. If you're going to be accurate, be accurate. But before I started diving into this, I started thinking, okay, what is the actual evidence that we have? We're going to start with kind of loose, circumstantial, hearsay kind of stuff. And then we're going to find out if there's any physical evidence at all. That's, that's where my common sense was leading to. There are a grand total of 10 hours, 10, of Betty and Barney Hill's hypnotic regression sessions available online via YouTube. I listened to every second of it. <laughs> and it's terrifying. It is downright frightening to listen to. 
because you have two conservative, professional, intelligent, well-schooled, well-spoken, well-read people that are put into this state and <laughs> they're experiencing the most horrific thing that a, a, a person could go through. It's just horrible. Barney is absolutely terrified. There's moments where he loses his composure and you kind of forget that you're listening to this well-suited, well-dressed, well-groomed black man who's in the civil rights movement and a real, you know, he is a hero to his people, man. Hero to all of us, really. You kind of forget that you're listening to somebody like that. He's an animal in a cage. When he starts screaming, I got to tell you something. Acting only goes so far. When you hear a scream like that, it's just a different, there's a different pitch to it. There's a different, I don't know what it is, a real scream, a real one. Somebody who is not understanding, somebody who is terrified, an animal in a cage. It almost doesn't sound human. Betty, on the other hand, she was a lot calm. She was obviously you know, keyed up and scared. She was crying at certain points, but Barney was absolutely frantic. I can't find a more eloquent word to describe it. I only script so much on this show. The only things that you ever hear that are scripted is the you know story time parts of it where I tell the you know facts of the case because I don't want to screw that up. But Barney was uh, he was just he, he was he was traumatized. Hearing him go through this. In, in his mind, you know, in real time, it's, 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 it's terrifying. Betty seemed a lot more, she was still scared, but a lot more inquisitive. And um, what's the word I'm looking for? Frighteningly intrigued by what was going on. Barney would say that outside of hypnosis, he was the one that was a lot more stoic and she was the one that was a lot more, you know, keyed up. And he said, it was kind of funny that under hypnosis, it was kind of the opposite. They asked him about it and he said, well, he, you know, Barney was old school. And he said, I wanted to be a man in front of my wife. You know, I wanted to be her, her anchor. And then when, you know, under hypnosis, Barney just let loose, man. How much evidence could that, because we got to look at, let's look at everything one at a time. We got to look at everything one thing at a time. There's three major things I want to look at. Hypnotic sessions being one of them. There's a lot you could say about hypnotic regression. Can you accidentally create a memory? Can you accidentally plant something in there? Can you suggest something and it manifests in a person's head? I don't think we, I mean, we could talk about that all day. I can dedicate a podcast to it. <laughs> but I don't think we need to go there. In fact, I was actually considering it last night, you know, really diving into, into the hypnotic regression stuff and is it legit. But the more I think about it, we kind of don't have to. Your brain is a lousy memory recall <laughs> mechanism. Lousy. So many outside things not only can skew those memories, but your brain is kind of a lousy record keeper anyway. It is known, especially within the last few years, that your brain will 
save the information that's absolutely necessary and it tends to fill gaps in. There's been studies about this. The brain will take the important stuff and it will fill gaps in. It's kind of, it's just, it's not a good <laughs> record keeping mechanism. Most powerful biological computer on this planet, yeah, but it's not flawless. So if a normally functioning brain can skew results of memories based on outside stimuli, sometimes not even outside stimuli, and your brain just does it, is that effect magnified with hypnotic regression? Does that effect still apply? Well, yeah, because you're diving into a person's brain. I do think that... It's considered pseudoscience still at, at, at this point. It's not widely accepted in the field of psychiatry. It is a tool. They do use it. But it's not a sanctioned thing. It's still considered... It's, it's still considered kind of... You know, dipping your toes in there a little bit. Some psychiatrists do it. Some don't. The jury's out. As far as whether... Hypnotic regression is something that is... I'll just say it the way it is, dangerous or not. We stray away from personal opinions and personal feelings on this show, unless I'm talking about something in my own life, but I might have to break our rule for just a second, and I'll tell you why, okay? I don't believe in hypnotic regression. I do think it actually does what it's supposed to do, and I think it is a viable tool, but I will never do it. <laughs> I just, I, I, yeah, you'll never see me waiting in line for that kind of stuff. I don't care what happens. Because the state that a person is in, you are completely at the mercy of that psychiatrist. I ain't going to be mentally, <laughs> especially dealing with trauma. I'm not going to be at the mercy of anybody. I'd rather deal with the dreams and not remember. I am not going to put my brain on the slab and be at the mercy of anyone. Because there is a bit of a conspiracy here. Some people say, I mean, there was, uh, and I'll briefly touch on this. There was, I mean, the KKK, okay, because that's going to spring to, that sprung to mind with me. Are there any KKK groups in the area? It was declared a terrorist organization way before Betty and Barney Hill. But there was an active KKK group around the Indian Head area at that time. They were known for picking on interracial couples, black people, running them off the road. On this particular stretch of road, couldn't find out, but it happened in that area. There's a bit of a conspiracy here that the doctor was in on it, implanting these false screen memories to protect the uh, you know, pillars of the community in that area. The doctor supposedly being one of them. Is that entirely out of the question? Some people roll their eyes and scoff at it. Me, I can see that happening. Do we have proof for it? No, but it's a very compelling kind of conspiracy theory. But we might not need it. The reason I'm against hypnotic regression, at least for myself, is because I'm not going to put my memories, my brain, my suggestibility, my remembrance of my trauma, and the magnification of that remembrance. I am not putting that in the hands of another man. I don't care who you are. Case in point, Barney's hypnotic regression sessions. This man is screaming. He's crying. He's terrified. It's hard to listen to. It almost kind of puts a lump in your throat. 
It is. It's hard to listen to. And the doctor keeps putting him back in. And then it's just another couple minutes. Barney is aware that he's hypnotized. And he keeps saying, I want to get out. I want to get out. I want to get out. Yeah, no, no, nobody, nobody had a gun to his head, right? <laughs> they didn't force Betty and Barney Hill to do that. They could have walked up at any time and be like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done here. But where's that ethical line? Where's the point where you say, I think I, I, I could be mentally damaging this person. And it doesn't matter how calmly I talk or how I word things or whatever. Some people say that's why they stretched it out for such a long time. Yeah, but if you listen to even the first couple of sessions, I think the doctor went a little too far. I'm not a psychiatrist. But you know what? Even psychiatrists don't 100% sanction this practice. So I think my word might mean something. But we don't have to go with the hypnotic regression 100%. Do we have any physical evidence of what happened to Betty and Barney Hill? As a matter of fact, we do. They were going on their honeymoon, right? So, you know, Barney wanted to look sharp. Betty wanted to look sharp. They dressed their best. Betty had a brand new dress. This thing had never been worn. Brand new dress. And after everything that happened, she felt that insatiable need, you know, to put the dress outside. Barney immediately got his suit laundered when he was able to. Betty never washed her dress. She said that it had this pink powdery substance all over it. And then um, she took it out of the box, hung it on the clothesline. And that pink powdery stuff kind of dissipated and flew away after a while. It left some stains on the dress, but then she put it in the closet. And there it sat for 40 years. Occasionally, she would take it out and show people that came by and, uh, you know, news organizations and whoever interviewed them. She would show it off. Bequeathed it to family member. And there it sat until October 15th, 2016. Yeah. See, that's why with the inconclusive ones, unless they absolutely break my heart and I wanted it to be real, we sit on them. And I always keep an eye. I know I have logged in my head all the episodes we've done that are inconclusive because, you know, this is 19, this is early 60s. And we get a development in 2016. This is how these things work. I mean, they just identified the Somerton Man. That was back in the 40s. The University of New Hampshire did a study on that dress. This thing, it wasn't hermetically sealed. They knew that. But this thing had been unwashed, untouched. Betty said nothing had been sprayed in the closet. They never had any kind of infestation, no kind of fumigation, nothing like that. There it sat, unwashed. If there was any evidence of an alien abduction, anything like that, it would be right there. So they took it seriously. They examined it. This took forever to find this report. <laughs> I almost gave up looking for this report, finding out who did it, trying to find a, a special on it. And I have a rule. I have a personal rule that if I pull up a documentary or a video and it's made by the History Channel, I don't watch it. <laughs> because, you know, the History Channel is the History Channel. We're not saying it's aliens, guys, but it's totally aliens. I know, it's, I, I know what they're doing, and in some small way I respect it, but it's dishonest. You know what I mean? It's dishonest. 
they believe everything. The most gullible people. It's unintentional comedy, though, if you if you ever want to see that. But anyway, I digress. The, uh, <laughs> the report, I found out, God, this took hours to find out who even did it. My brain is shaking in my head just thinking about all that. <laughs> I eventually found it, the report. And it's quite a wordy report. There's a lot going on there. Tells about the story. There's a section of that. There's a history of the dress, which I think we should uh, tap into just a little bit. Like I said, we're probably going to go way over time on this episode, but I don't want to do a part two. I don't want to make you guys wait to find out you know, what, what we find, if anything. So uh, I'm going to read this uh, study, forensic study on the dress verbatim. I'm not interjecting my own stuff here. Nothing is scripted. I will read this verbatim. To my knowledge, many details on the history of the dress worn during the abduction event are not documented, though some are. The The dress Betty wore on that night was brand new. She had worn it only one other day during that weekend, but not the day before the abduction. Therefore, it had never been laundered. Keep in mind, all this is verbatim. The weather on the night of the event was unusually warm for that time of year, and it was not exceptionally humid. Okay, listen to that. Not exceptionally humid. Keep that in mind. That was my part. (laughs) Okay, now back to verbatim. When the abduction began, Betty recalls that two beings were on each side and escorted her to the craft with their hands under her armpits. Betty related she put up a hell of a fight before she crossed the threshold of the craft. I asked whether she hit with her hands. She said, no, I kicked like hell because my arms were restricted. Sorry, I had to scroll down there. The only place I could get it was downloaded on my phone. The dress obviously suffered stresses. While on the craft, she remembers that halfway through the physical examination, they decided to remove the dress. They had difficulties with the zipper, not knowing how they operate. Once removed, the dress ended up on the floor of the craft in a heap. Okay, so we're going to skip forward. We know about the pink powder, all that stuff. Now, the analysis summary. Here's the big part, okay? I'm going to read this verbatim, and then we'll kind of touch on it. The discolored pink magenta stain areas of the dress have suffered chemical effects on both the dye and the fiber. That is, it had been biologically attacked. In fact, there is primarily a biologically derived material on the dress that appears to be mildew, and this has suffered some degradation over the years. Chemically, it has a protein-like structure. The highest concentration of mildew was in the pink areas. Moreover, mildew was found to be mostly on the exterior of the dress, not interior, particularly on the outside under the underarm areas. It was definitely not from body respiration or elimination products from Betty. There are trace amounts of natural Easter and common dust components, typical of what you would see from a dress that was hung in a closet for four decades. There's DNA from assorted sources such as soil bacteria, alpha protobacterium, human, spider, possibly mouse, and bovine. There's no evidence for unidentified DNA, which I had hoped for. If alien DNA were present, it would not have matched up to anything in our DNA databanks. There would be no references, and you would think that that would be a difficulty, but it would also cause a major flag in my system. Betty told me, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a most unpleasant, unidentifiable odor on the craft. She said the smell was similar to marigolds. 
I think that this odor emanated from the craft occupants, and this was the result of natural body elimination of oils and respiratory agents, if the story is true. These transferred to the dress on contact. The pink areas are most profound around the top of the dress, especially around the sleeves where the aliens have supposedly gripped Betty and escorted her to and from the craft. The moist, damp biological components found on the dress were probably also on Betty's skin, causing her to feel clammy and dirty. It may also be an indication there was high humidity in the craft, well above the human comfort zone. Now, this is a humidity that had to have occurred artificially. This is not natural humidity. This is a humidity that had to be well above normal atmospheric condition. I don't believe the original deposited substance on the dress directly caused the discoloration. Betty found the discoloration days later when she took the dress out of the closet. The substance on the dress was probably moist, so the moisture was not allowed to dissipate because the dress was folded. This moist substance, probably slightly acidic, served as a nutrient for natural biological growth, most likely mildew. This grew exponentially fast. Days later, the, day the dress finally dried. The pink powdery residue from the growth remained. It was this mildew-like material that probably caused the discoloration and probably interacted with the dress fiber. On the left sleeve, DNA analysis identified alpha protobacterium. This is bacteria found in soils and water. The soil bacteria could be picked up anywhere. You have it on your clothes, I have it on mine. If the dress was on the ground, some of the bacteria could have easily gotten there. I found this very interesting. The bacteria was located on the front of the left sleeve. If Betty was wearing the dress, she would have had to have been in a prone position flat on the ground for over 24 hours. This is highly unlikely. There is one time that we know that the dress was on the ground. This was when the dress was removed from Betty in the craft and thrown crumpled onto the craft floor. Clearly, some of this bacteria could have easily come from soil dirt on the floor brought in from footwear worn by Betty and the aliens. The abduction took place on a dirt road. It has since been paved. So that's really the major points of the report. And we got <laughs> you could dice up a lot there. But here's the one thing I want to tell you is that the <clears throat> examination of the dress didn't pull up any kind of strange DNA, unknown DNA, nothing like that, which would have been the smoking gun. That would have been the big deal, right? But what they did find out was that this protobacterium, which is found in soils and water, it's natural. You have it on your clothes, I have it on mine. You could live in a sterile environment, you still got it. Well, they found out that the mildew not only grew exponentially fast, and it was exposed to an it was exposed to an environment well above anything natural. It had to have been exposed to an artificially humid environment well above human threshold level. That's bizarre. Even the person doing the report mentioned, you know, how strange that was. And on top of that, Betty had to have been laying prone on the ground for over 24 hours. They weren't even gone that long. This is the only real piece of physical evidence that we have. Is it proof that an alien came and abducted them? <clears throat> I don't want to go that far. But it is proof that something strange happened. It is proof that there was an event, an unusual one, an unusual event that occurred on that night. I can't go as far as to say it's extraterrestrial. But then we look at the star map. Star map's a big one. 
because this is another, I would say, lesser piece of evidence, you know, a physical dress that was worn by somebody, uh, that's a pretty major deal. So let me, um, let me stop here real quick. To you, it'll be nothing instantaneous, but I got to pull up some notes. This star map is something that we need to look at in some detail. Okay, here we go. So a few years later, see, under hypnosis, Betty was able to redraw the map the alien leader has shown her. Betty was vague about what the map actually showed. Sometimes she referred to as it showing stars and planets. Her sketch was reproduced in books and magazines. In the late 60s, a teacher named Marguerite Fish, she actually passed in 2013, she tried to compare the map with real nearby stars and see if they matched. She did a brilliant experiment. And even though she was an amateur astronomer, I've seen reports of actual astronomers, theoretical physicists, I mean, people in the scientific community that praised her work, saying how smart it was. She used, to start, she used a 50-light-year radius. And she said, okay, within 50 light years, are there any star systems that might match this? She took the most likely ones and actually hung ping pong balls from her ceiling. And the most likely candidates she would look at and photograph at different angles. And then she came to Zeta Reticuli 1 and 2, a star system that's about 35 light years from us. Excuse me. Wow, my throat's... (laughs) Uh, It's getting over being sick, guys. Sorry. And then found out that not only was it accurate, it was almost, it was, it was identical. Zeta Reticuli 1 and 2. Now, a lot of people say that Zeta Reticuli, you're going to hear some misinformation that Betty had discovered this before the scientific community. That's hogwash, completely not true. We knew about Zeta Reticuli, the first published study of Zeta Reticuli 1 and 2, binary star system was in 1900. We've known about it. It was first discovered, quote-unquote, back in the 1500s. It was first written about in the 1700s. Officially, it was placed onto the books in about 1888 to 1900, around there. And we've just recently figured out in recent years, well, (laughs) I'll get to that, because there is something weird. So she used a... um, you know, 50 light year radius, which is brilliant. And she found a system. So after the sifting process, Fish was left with 46 stars. Using the data from the 1969 edition of the Glee's catalog of nearby stars, which was just recently updated, this took her almost five years just to make sure that it was correct. She painstakingly constructed it because even within that 50 light year range, Oh, she she had her work cut out for her. <laughs> Wire, beads, ping pong balls. She viewed these and photographed them from every possible angle, and then she found it. The viewpoint was from slightly above the Zeta II Reticuli star system. This pair of G-type stars, it's only 35 light years away. I know I say only 35 light years away, but in uh, celestial distance, as far as the cosmos, these stars are right next door. These, see, since we didn't have the, uh, this is what she concluded, the teacher. She said, since we did not have the data to make such a map in 61 when Betty saw it, or in 1964 when she drew it, it could not be a hoax. Since the stars with lines to them are such a select group, it is almost impossible that the resemblance between Betty's map and reality could be coincidental. 
Betty's map could only have been drawn after contact with extraterrestrials. That was the conclusion of what she said. Uh, the Zeta Reticuli star system, you had to go pretty obscure to find any kind of diagram of these. Yeah, they were published at the time, but they weren't widely available to the public. You couldn't just go grab a book and find a diagram of the Zeta Reticuli star system. It was published, yeah, but you had to be a real <laughs> star nerd <laughs> to know what those things look like. Not only know where to find you know, the diagrams of it, but be able to do it from memory. It's probably more complicated than that, though. Based on obsolete data, Marjorie Fish's interpretation of Betty Hill's map had been actually shown to be wrong. In the early 1990s, there's a European, uh, uh, what is it called? Let me see my notes here. Hippercoast, Hypercuption Parallax Collecting Satellite. Wow, that's an acronym, guys. Mission <laughs> measured the distances to more than 100,000 stars around the sun more accurately than ever. Some turned out to be way further away than previously thought, thereby making Betty Hill's map complete bunk. They found out that there's nothing even remotely where she had drawn certain dots. In 1990s, okay? <laughs> In the 1990s. So Fish's interpretation fell to pieces at this point, right? This is, a, it's completely flawed. The aliens had showed her trade routes, yeah, and exploration routes. Those were, that, that represented you know, the lines that she drew. They said it's no longer suitable because two distant stars have been removed from the map and the map just completely falls apart. The whole idea that Betty Hill was accurately reproducing something she really saw as flawed. Now, you're dealing with memory again, so you got to take that into consideration too. And I was going to talk a lot more about some of the bizarre and just odd things that Betty has said over the years. But then when I look at it, you know, she said that, oh, I thought uh, when I saw the light, I thought I'd discovered a new planet. But then just a couple of years before, she said she wasn't interested in astronomy in the slightest before this incident. But a lot of these interviews didn't happen until she was well into her 80s. And you tell me, how many marbles are you going to have rolling around in your head when you hit you know, your late 80s? You might have a few missing. But we don't need that. Yeah, Betty has said some kind of weird and bizarre things, kind of things that I wouldn't say contradicted, just weird stuff. She said that she had encountered things afterwards and she was able to photograph UFOs and all that. I think that's going to distract us. Yeah, we could look at Betty Hill as, a, as far as her character. We could look at, is she a trustworthy person? A lot of people have argued that Betty Hill somehow convinced Barney that this episode had occurred and something untoward happened. I don't think we need to go there. Because the question is, were they abducted by aliens or not? I'm not I don't think the question should be, is Betty a trustworthy person? I don't even think we need to go that far. We have enough evidence. We don't need to look at Betty, honestly. So hypnosis, you know, could have skewed this. An individual can produce from memory dots on a map with accuracy down to the millimeter? Can we? 
Betty Hill herself appears to have been unsure at w- how accurate her drawing was. She said this herself. She said, as far as the eight background stars, I really don't know if they exist in that exact position or if I added them to try to show that other stars were seen on the sky map in the background. I added a couple to show that the stars were in the background as to their position, but the larger dots, I guarantee are in the same spot. Cut to 2018. The Exoplanet Project, where NASA has been discovering, you know, really, really looking for exoplanets. Just so turns out that the star map that Betty Hill drew, the missing dots that we had omitted back in the early 90s, there are dots there. Zeta Reticuli 1 has no extrasolar planetary bodies. Zeta 2 does. And there's a gas giant very similar to our own Jupiter. They detected a wobble in the latter 2010s on Zeta Reticuli 2, which would indicate a gravitational pull of some some kind. That's what they look for, star wobbling. And yeah, there are exoplanets there, right where Betty had drawn a dot. So as far as evidence goes, we have a star map that was accurate and then not accurate and then accurate again. (laughs) (laughs) but it seems like every time that someone tries to annihilate the, you know, (laughs) reliability of the star map, something else gets discovered. Carl Sagan actually chimed in on this. Yeah. The Carl Sagan back in the day, he said you could take a 50 light year span anywhere in the cosmos. You have an, you have so many stars, so many that you're going to find this pattern somewhere within that, even within a 50 light year range. He said, come on, you're looking at it from every conceivable angle. You're going to find this pattern. And you know what? I actually agree with him. There are so many stars up there and I know they got narrowed down to 40 something, you know, because of the major stars and whatnot. But I, I, I do kind of side with Carl Sagan here. There's so many stars up there. If you look at them from every conceivable angle, you're going to find something that probably looks just like out of Zeta Reticuli too. It was a great study. But it seems like the more time that passes, the more we discover up there, it seems to line up with Betty's chart. I was leaning on with the bizarre statements that Betty has made over the years. Granted, she was in her 80s. And... Barney being way more frightened under hypnosis than Betty was, I kind of started looking at Betty for a little while during my research. I was like, there's something, I just, I couldn't shake it. There was something off. And I don't want to speak ill of Betty. She seemed like a lovely woman. And she never remarried. Dig that. She never remarried. Loyal. And I didn't want to pin anything on her that she didn't do. You know, but one of two things happened, okay? It's, it's, it's verdict time here. We're almost at an hour. <laughs> we went like double our time. Let's just call this the, I don't know, holiday, <laughs> holiday special. Because <laughs> you guys won't hear this until well into November. We'll call this the Thanksgiving special. How's that? There we go. But yeah. I covered up well, didn't I, (laughs) for going way over time. But okay, so it's, you know, this is the point where we usually deliver our verdict. This is a really tricky one because it seems like every time you try to debunk this star chart, 
it, we end up proving it again because of new discovery. So I'm thinking with the star chart, one of two things have happened. Betty had a fascination with the cosmos before all of this happened. There is a speculation that the aliens that she drew bore a striking similarity to an episode of The Outer Limits, actually, that aired only two weeks before their supposed abduction. And then her making contradicting statements, saying that she was into astronomy, that she wasn't, that she was, you know, it could have been the incident itself that spurred that on. We don't know. But there are some kind of odd statements there. I say again, when these statements were made, she was well into her 80s. So she had time, you know, for things to fade and think about it and let kind of those biases get in the way. The best time to interview somebody about something like this is right when it happened. So we have that going against us. And I was. I was speculating for a while that there was something going on with Betty. But we might not need that. The star chart keeps being proven to be accurate. And then since then, uh, should I even mention this? Other abductions, people like Whitley Strieber, they mentioned Zeta Reticuli as well. But this case was so famous. You know, is that skewing anything? Is that putting something mentally in people's heads? Is there some kind of preconceived thing? I can't, I'm sorry, but I can't take into consideration that that hasn't happened with Whitley Strieber and people like that. I'm not saying they're not telling the truth. We haven't examined their cases yet. But this was the first one, you know, uh, that mentioned the star system. We need to take it seriously. This is where they said they were from. And then the dress. This one is obviously inconclusive. We can't prove that they were abducted by aliens, nor can we prove there was other some kind of foul something going on afoot. But one thing I can tell you is something did happen on that night on that road. Yes, something did happen. Was there some conspiracy with the <laughs> the community in the area, with the doctor himself, to kind of create maybe some screen memories or make them think under the power of suggestion and maybe Betty's hidden fascination with the cosmos to kind of uh, detract from the pillars of the community in the area that may have attacked them? Possibly, Betty said she felt like she was raped. Could that have been a thing? If you were driving down a dirt road, 19, let's not not even say you, let's not personalize it because what I'm about to say is horrible. A person is driving down dirt road, 1961. They see a white woman and a black man laying in the middle of a field, alive, but not moving. How many of those people would just keep on driving? How many? That's a scary thought, but a real one. The dress. That's really the only major evidence that we have. That doesn't prove alien abduction. That doesn't prove conspiracy. What it does prove is that something out of the ordinary, something not normal, happened on that drive. Evidence has come out. We're dealing with the early 60s. We have some pieces of evidence that didn't pop up until 2018. I think that the story of Betty and Barney Hill, I think that fate, the powers that be, the ether, the almighty, I think that fate has more to tell us about this story. I just got a funny feeling. There's more to learn about the Betty and Barney Hill case. And it seems like 
much with the Somerton man, the Tom Umshud case, which I almost did an episode on, by the way, <laughs> when they identified him. There are some things I believe that will remain a mystery forever. But time is on your side. It's against you and for you at the same time. <laughs> People will be on their deathbeds. People will... You know, new technologies will arise. New discoveries will be made. We're going to have to keep an eye on the Betty and Barney Hill case. I think there's still more to see. And unfortunately, as much as I want to, I, 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 you know, I'll be honest, my need to prove that this incident occurred is just as strong as my need to debunk it. I wanted a definitive answer on this one. I wanted one. But I don't think we can have it. Which kind of saddens me a little bit. <laughs> I wanted to bust this one open. Unlike all the other YouTubes and documentaries and stuff, I wanted to be the guy. But uh, unfortunately, didn't really turn out that way. <laughs> Inconclusive. But I can tell you that something out of the ordinary did happen. It did. And the, the dress proves that. So... What do you think of the Barney and Betty Hill case? Is it something that you have a staunch opinion about? Is it something that I miss some crucial piece of evidence that uh, did I overlook something? Do you know something about this case that I overlooked? Let me know. Contact me. That's all, friends. Special thanks to this week's sponsors who make the show possible. Make sure to check out the link to our Patreon page in this episode's description, where as little as a dollar a month, you can get everything from bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, giveaways of certain tiers, outtakes, bloopers, a podcast just for the patrons. Who does that? Special thanks to the patrons, by the way, the Kunkel Homestead YouTube channel, Donald Haynes, Dillagaff, Kristen Belt. The show wouldn't be around if it wasn't for you guys. I'm serious. <laughs> Actually, I, <laughs> I had to cash out the Patreon account recently because, you know, things break and things go south on me and things stop working. So I appreciate you. It takes money to run a podcast and it always, I swear, it always seems like when I need it, it's in there. Like just enough in the Patreon, Patreon account. It's, it's amazing. And I love you guys. Now, are we ever going to run out of strange places to talk about? I don't think so. Because every town has a strange place, and maybe one day, we'll visit yours. <laughs>